0: For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them the perish foolishness. But to unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 31, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And verse 5 of chapter 2, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This morning, the world celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I hope you never get tired of hearing. We celebrate it every service. Uh, we talk about the resurrection of Christ. It is the center of everything that we believe. And yet today, we we live in a world where truth is attributed to just a tradition in tradition, to myth. And therefore, anything that's in the Bible is just a story, nothing more. Now, that's the way the world in which we live looks at it. I want to challenge you. We, we don't accept that here, uh, never have, and nor have the people of God ever accepted that the Bible is a bunch of stories. If you were here, we went through the events of resurrection uh, day at the tomb. I mean, there was more going on at the empty tomb of Jesus than there was at any other place in the city of Jerusalem on that day. And yet, if the story of Jesus' resurrection were a fabrication, there was no end to the people who wanted to quell that story. The time to get it done would have been right then. Fifty days later, on the next Jewish feast, the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the first gospel sermon, fulfilling the prophecies that were in the book of Joel, in the fact that God gave them the phenomena, the, the miraculous speaking of other languages. Now many churches have claimed uh, that they have re uh reinstated that gift of Acts chapter 2, but read the chapter. Those were actual languages understood by actual people that were there assembled at the temple. That does not go on in any quote-unquote charismatic or tongue-speaking church in this day. You see, what God was doing was He was giving proof to the testimony of the disciples later on in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius the first true Gentile would believe Peter was speaking to them and preaching the gospel to Cornelius and all those that assembled in his house primarily a Gentile group and what did it say? while Peter was yet preaching this is one of the reasons we know he was a Baptist he never quit preaching amen uh, he just kept on a going. And uh, it says that the Spirit fell on them the same way they did on the day of Pentecost. That they understood the language which with these Gentiles spoke, praising and glorifying God. Now, that's a fairly limited amount. The disciples were not educated men, as we might say today. Uh, they would have only spoken three or four languages. That puts most of us to shame now, doesn't it? And uh, But the language that they would have had no way of knowing, being Gentiles, would have been Hebrew. Now, could you imagine a Roman soldier speaking in Hebrew? Never having learned the language, Hebrew is one of the most difficult languages there is to learn. That's why all your Bible scholars, they like to learn Greek, but there aren't very many of them that learn Hebrew. It's just a little too much work. And uh, listen... Once God proved that the message of Peter, of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, brings salvation to the Jews. He used Cornelius and the people assembled in his house to prove to Peter and the other apostles that that same salvation came to the Gentiles. There's nothing left to prove anymore. What we need is to get into the Word of God. You see, the clarion call of our day, and it's not very clarion, but is if we want to know the truth, what do we do? Take a poll. We'll call a thousand people and we'll get their opinion and they'll tell us what is true. It's a democracy, right? Majority rules. I mean, if you're in charge... You get to determine what's true and what isn't. Isn't that right? And yet even the littlest child in our group today would not disagree with me that if we had a group of the most learned scholars, a majority of people in the United States that would agree that the laws of gravity no longer apply, how many of you think it would have a sincere effect on the way our universe works? Nobody's taking me on that one? You see, opinion has never ever determined truth. Truth, once it is molded and shaped, is no longer truth. If we can just establish at the most base point of what makes words mean anything. Truth is true because it's truth. It does not need to be proved. I don't need to step off the platform and allow you to watch me fall to the floor in a heap to prove the law of gravity works. It's going to no matter what. And so I'm not going to worry about proving the law of gravity, nor am I going to waste time trying to prove he that created the matter that makes up the laws of gravity. You see, if you're not willing to believe that God is, the Bible says you have no faith. For without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is... And that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He is not the God of the agnostic, which says, well, I believe there's a God out there. There has to be. Uh, The world in which we live has too much order for it not to be created or started or put into place by someone. But... And the agnostic is honest. See, that's the difference between an agnostic and an atheist. Atheist is dishonest. He says, there is no God. And the agnostic says, well, there is a God, but you can't know him. But the Bible says, there is a God. You must believe that he is, but you must believe that he is the rewarder. Of them that diligently seek Him. Number one, He wants to be found by you. He's not lost. You are. Amen? And He wants you to find Him. And He has done everything possible for every person who has ever lived to find Him. How many of you would agree with me? God is. Amen? And God is good. Amen? That's what faith is. Well, what do I do when it doesn't feel like God is good? Get your feeler fixed. Allow the Word of God to determine your feelings rather than your feelings determining what is the Word of God or what isn't. You see, that's the difference between truth and opinion. We live in a world where people believe that if they repeat something long enough, it becomes truth. Uh Uh-uh. It doesn't work that way. If they wanted to end Christianity... And I wish we had time this morning to go through all of this. But how many of you remember the second time, Acts chapter uh, 5, they were brought before the Sanhedrin the second time after they'd healed the lame man. Uh, They were let go, then they were brought back again. And finally, one of their own number, one of their greatest teachers, people still quote him sometimes today, his name was Gamaliel. He was the one that trained... Uh, Saul of Tarsus in the tradition of the Jewish people. And later Saul became the greatest of all the apostles recorded in the scripture. But Gamaliel said, listen, we need to let these guys alone. Because if it's not of God, it'll come to nothing. But if it is of God, and he's looking at the men who were physically responsible... For manipulating Pilate and sending Jesus to the cross. And of course, we know that Jesus chose that road of his own free will. No one chose it for him. He was not a martyr. He was not a victim of circumstance. He came to die on the cross on purpose. That's what the Bible teaches. But this Gamaliel looked around at these people and said if we're not careful, this thing may actually be of God and you are going to find yourselves fighting against God. Now, is that where you want to be? And a majority of them said, yes. Because we'll choose to fight against God rather than admit that we're wrong. And that's why some of the most vicious persecution came from that very body. People have said in our day and time, if we could just get rid of religion, we, we would have a peaceful world. All the battles are about religion. Well, if you just put in the proper modifier, the proper adjective, that sentence would be true. If we could get rid of false religion. You see, false religion, because it is false has to be defended by strength of arms. It has to be defended to the utmost. Because if you don't defend it, it will be shown up for the lie that it is. Read your book of Acts. How many of you remember the story of Diana of the Ephesians? How they set the entire city on an uproar. Uh... How many people worship at the temple to Diana in Ephesus today? May I ask you? If there's anybody that still follow that strange and perverse religion, they do so in the deepest and darkest cellars to hide their evil deeds from society in which they live. That's the difference between what was in the Bible And what is in the heart of man. And Paul is writing here to the Corinthians. Now, the Corinthian church has a lot in common with us today. They had a lot of problems. In fact, if you knew somebody that was all messed up in Paul's day, if you lived in the first century, about 50 A.D. or so, when this letter was written... And you had a friend that was all messed up. I mean, maybe they weren't an alcoholic, but they just spent a little too much time under the influence. And uh, maybe uh, they really didn't need to be uh, put on medication, but they had anger management problems. And their life was a mess. And they were disorganized. And they, they just had problems all the way around. You know what you would do? You'd say, Joe... You're such a Corinthian. Let's get things straightened out. That's the way it was used in those days. Paul went into this city. And he's giving his testimony here. He said, I want you to understand something. I did not come to baptize you. I did not come to add another religious ceremony to what was going on. Verse 17, he said, I came to preach the gospel. You know, if there's anything we need today, if there's anything we endeavor to do, is we want to keep preaching the gospel alive. We want to continue. What is the gospel? Well, the word gospel simply means good news. And I like to challenge you because I always win on this one. Can anybody tell me any good news of something going on today? The economy is improving. Oh, well, it's the slowest and worst improvement in the history of the United States. You got any other good news you'd like to try? Are taxes going down? Uh, hiring is up, except for last month. Um, but, 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 well, uh, it, it's looking better, but, you know, employers are, are, are going to have to start paying higher wages sometime. How many of you think you can wait till sometime? You know what the good news is? That Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place to pay for your sins. And that he died. You see, the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus died on the cross. And I don't know if this is still alive or not, but when I was a young man preparing for the ministry, some well-known radio preacher was trying to separate between the death and the shed blood of Jesus as if they were two separate incidents. Let me tell you something. There's no such separation in the Scriptures. Jesus shed His blood. He died on the cross. And His blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven, whereby He's obtained an eternal, eternal redemption for us. You see, Jesus came out of the tomb that third day, Sunday morning, because death could not keep God. You know, that's one of the questions people say, Uh, If Jesus is God, how did he die? Jesus was man. He died. Jesus is God. Like the song we sang yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory, glory to his name. See, that's the gospel. That's the only good news you will ever hear in this life. That's really good news. That no one can take away. That no one can change. You see, that was the message that Paul preached in the great city of Corinth. We we live in a world today where Preachers are searching for relevance. Well, you've got to, you gotta meet people where they are. Well, according to the Bible, if you have yet to receive the gospel, let me tell you where you are. You're on a road that's gonna take you to destruction, to a place called hell forever, separated from God eternally. That's where you are. I didn't know there were preachers like you still left. Oh, there's a lot of us. Because we just want to preach what the Bible says. And until you wake up and realize where you are, you're never going to get off that road and get on the road that leads to eternal life. You see, here's the way Paul put it. It says for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness now that ought to be a warning if you're sitting here today and you think that all this Jesus stuff and the fact that he died on the cross 2000 years ago and is a bunch of foolishness i want you to understand something this warning is for you you are going to perish That's what it says. That those that are going to perish think the preaching of the cross is foolishness. If we read down here a little further, verse 22 says that the Jews require a sign and and the Greeks seek wisdom. Now, boy, doesn't that describe our world today? I mean, we got people out there saying, oh, I want you to prove the Bible is true. How many of you know the story of Joseph Stalin? Back when he was a teenager, before he became the murderous thug that he grew up to be. His grandmother was a Bible-believing Baptist. He taught him the Bible. The story is that Joseph Stalin, as a 12-year-old boy, or somewhere in that neighborhood, said, I want you to prove that you're God to me. I'm going to give you three days. And he went out in the wilderness all by himself for three days and asked God to prove that he was God. And, of course, God did nothing. And he came back convinced that there was no God and went on his murderous, thugging ways probably more blood on the hands of Joseph Stalin than any living human being that we would know. Well, maybe Attila the Hun. Unbelievable man. Well, why didn't God circumvent that and stop him and prove that he was gone? Because he already had, my friend. If you won't believe what's written here, You wouldn't believe it if he showed up in person. And by the way, if he did, that'd be the end of you. Because no sin can abide in his presence. If God revealed his glory, even the least part of it before you, you would just, you're gone. Well, how did Jesus walk on this earth? He veiled that glory so that we could talk with Him and so he could, we could walk with Him and so those disciples could see and hear and understand. You read John chapter 3 before verse 16. Jesus said, No one has ascended into heaven except the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus made that a present tense statement while He was standing here on earth. Don't pretend, don't fall for the lie that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. This Bible is so full of his claims that only a liar can deny them. See, Paul said in verse 21, For after that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God, would that make today's headlines or what? We're gonna, we found nitrogen on Mars. You know what that proves? Nothing. But they're trying to prove that there's life on Mars. Hey, let me tell you something. Don't worry about life on Mars until you get with God and take care of the life He's given you right here on Earth. You see, it's so easy to forget about all my problems and all my shortcomings and all my sins in search for other life. Because it lets me ignore what's going on right here. Now, this is what the Bible says. The world in its wisdom chose to know not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, until you're willing to admit that God knows a little more than you do, you're never going to get saved. You know, God chose to use this thing called preaching because He wants us to understand It's not about you. It's not about me as the preacher. I mean, you read through the articles. You know what? There are people that preach Apple computers today. There are people that are out there preaching. I mean, they use the same technology. They use the same uh, methods. They use the... Uh, inflection of their speech and they use cute little stories and they try to do everything that preaching has except they change the truth for something else I read a very troubling pamphlet years ago and I I will uh, preface this by telling you that I am pro-life I believe in life I don't believe in abortion Someone said, what about uh, for the life of the mother? What about that? I I believe in life. And I believe God is the giver of life. And I don't believe man has the right to take life. But the pamphlet said, we have so-and-so as our special speaker. It was Ohio Right to Life was the party was pinned in the pamphlet. We have Dr. So and so who used to be an abortion provider. She's been converted and now she's against abortion. Well, last time I checked, that word converted means saved. It's a word to choose in your Bible. Just because you stop murdering little babies doesn't mean you're saved. There's lots of people that aren't saved. That are against abortion. You see, I don't care what the cause is. You've got to give up the cause. And remember that there is only one causative agent in this universe. That is God. And it's time to surrender yourself to His Word. Doesn't that sound foolish? How many of you remember the first time you heard the gospel, it just sounded crazy to you? You, you want me to give my life to some words in a book? That's, that doesn't make sense to me. But how many are glad you did it? Say, amen. amen. You see, God's foolishness is still wiser than anything man can come up with. And if there is anything that could be attributed weakness... If it belongs to God, it's still stronger than the strongest thing that man has ever thought of. You see, there's a purpose to this plan. Let's look at verse 26. He says, For ye see your calling, brethren... How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Now, we're going to stop there a minute. Now, who's Paul speaking to? He's speaking to the Corinthian church. How many of you got what he just said? He said, Corinthians, look around. There aren't very many of you there with a high IQ. Not very many of you in there that the world would consider wise. He said, I want you to look around again. Is there any mighty in your group? Is there any big strong guys that can just take care of things? Leaders. Are there any of those there? He said, "Uh, let me challenge you. I've been to your church. Not very many. How about noble?" It's men of high birth, men of great esteem in society. He says, I'm sorry, guys. Look around. Aren't many of those either. Um, what's that last one in the list there? Yeah, noble was the last. Wise, mighty, noble. And then he says something. He said, but God's chosen the foolish things of this world. Somebody might say, is that an insult? Well, it's not an insult if it's the truth, now is it? Because until you admit that you're foolish, you'll never see the wisdom that God has. Until you're willing to understand that God does not need your talents and your strength and your abilities. God is not impressed with anything that you can do. Do you know that you cannot think a thought that God already knows more than you'll ever be able to figure out? There's nothing you can think about that God doesn't already know everything about. Do you think I'm going to go before God and impress Him with my so-called intelligence when He's the one that created the human brain? I think we ought to line up with the Apostle Paul and say... I qualify for foolish. You know why God wants to use the foolish things of this world? Look what it says. God hath chosen, verse 27, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And Paul is going to go through a list of comparisons, almost poetry here. He says, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty, the base things of this world and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. And then he tells us the purpose of all of this. That no flesh should glory in his presence. You know, when we stand before God, and the Bible tells us that all of us will, we have nothing to offer Him. What could you do to enrich God? What could you give God that would make him more wealthy, uh, better off than he is right now. What bit of advice, and believe me, I've read commentaries and heard people talk over the years, well, if I could give God a little bit of advice, I'd help him straighten this mess out. Wow. As a friend used to say, dumber than a box of rocks. And every boy's had a box of rocks at one time in his life. he just pick them up. Little bits of gravel and coal and all kinds of worthless stuff. Let me tell you something. God's chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak things to confound the mighty. Isn't it amazing... Less than 300 years from the time that Jesus walked the face of this earth, we have the Roman Empire, which is the mightiest empire on the face of the earth at this time. The emperor and the entire empire, quote-unquote, now they didn't really become Christians, but they adopted a form of Christianity because it was more powerful than they were. Constantine, if he was anything, he was a great poker player. He was a great bluffer. He was a great chance taker. He wanted to be Caesar. There's only one thing standing between him and being Caesar. was an army about twice the size of the one he had. And he had to come up with something. And so, you know what he did? He goes to his soldiers after having done a little investigation and finding out that about two-thirds to three-quarters of his army were professing faith in Jesus Christ, the real faith. They had heard from some traveling evangelist from the descendants of those who were in Corinth, Uh, different places, they had heard the gospel, and they had believed, and they followed Constantine. Constantine, the night before the great battle, had a vision. And he took a cross and added it to the Roman eagle that they carried, the pole that each army carried, symbolizing its power and its strength and he put a cross on there and he said i had a vision soldiers in this sign shall you conquer and whoever carries this emblem of our strength shall not be hurt in battle do you find anything like that in the bible uh, not by god by the way and he won the battle and he said i am going to become a christian do you know how Constantine became a Christian? He waited until he knew he was dying. And then he said, I want to be baptized now so they'll wash as many of my sins away as possible before I die. Now, what kind of faith is that? Is that the foolish faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ that forgives us of our sins? Or is it a worldly faith? in the waters of baptism, and the powers of a church to take away your sins. I'm afraid it's the latter, not the former. I have no hope, based on Constantine's own testimony in his life, that we'll see him on the right side of eternity. But yet, he is proof, as much proof as you would like, that God took the unseen things... I dare, I dare anybody in here to stand up and give me the name of a Bible-believing preacher who lived in the days of Constantine. Anybody want to try that? You see, God took the things that are not seen. We know they were there because we have their records. God took the things that are not seen and brought to naught the things that are. They closed the form. They closed the temples to the false gods and said, we will worship Jesus. And they said, well, emperor, we have some disagreements on on what we should believe about Jesus. And the emperor said, we'll solve that problem. Let's have a church meeting. Who's in charge? Emperor. (laughs) That's why we know it's not true Christianity. Because in the true church, who's in charge? He which is not seen. The Lord Jesus Christ and His Word are our only judges. And how do we know what Jesus actually said? Because it's written down. We don't go anywhere else. Amen? You see, God has set this thing up. He has chosen the base and the despised things of this world. I love the story. I hope I don't tell it too often. This was before Constantine during one of the periods of persecutions. Uh, Somewhere in the neighborhood of Rome, they caught a preacher, Bible-believing preacher. And they said, we want all the treasures that are in your church. He thought about it a minute he says, well, you're going to need several wagons for that. And the Roman soldier said, hot dog. Whatever that is translated into Latin. And uh, he said, I found out uh, the treasure. And he got all the carts together. And that preacher went back. And he got all the slaves and the beggars and the poor people of his church. And he loaded them on the carts. He said, here's the treasure of our church. He he. Paid for that with his life. But wasn't he being honest? You see, the real treasure of the church is the souls. The base things. The things that the world despises. But that's the things that God wants to use. So that no flesh in glory in his presence you read the book of Job what is one of the things that God tells Job when he's questioning him at the end of the book he says can you abase the proud he says I can put Leviathan in his place you can't he says I'm God because I'm going to destroy Pride. You want to solve all the conflicts that are going on in this earth in one sentence. Right there it is. Because by pride cometh what? Conflict. That's in Proverbs. Jesus said he's going to abase all pride. He's going to get rid of it. How's he going to do that? Right here. Because when we stand before God, it's nothing about me, nothing I've done, nothing you've done. It's all about what He's done. What did He do? He died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb. And He rose again from the dead. You see, that's the gospel. I'm sure you figured out by now that I could go on all day But I promise you, we're going to stop fairly soon. You see, I want us to get to verse 5 in chapter 2. Verse 1 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, saying, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Years ago, about the turn of the last century, there were a group of men that traveled this country. And uh, they were the ones that made the term atheist part of our public conversation. And one of the men would walk into, they'd rent a city hall and they'd bring everybody in that would come in. And he would pull his pocket watch out and he would lay it on the podium And he would say, listen, I'm going to challenge God because I don't believe there is one. He said, I'm going to curse God for 60 seconds. And if God doesn't kill me, then you can know there is no God. And he would do that. I mean, it was a shock effect. And people would just sit there. People would come just hoping lightning would fall and. It never did. Do you think God was worried about one little idiot cursing his name? God had a lot more important things to do, like save souls and encourage them through the preaching of his word. You see, God's always busy about good things. He'll let evil take care of itself. But one time a man challenged him. And here was his challenge. And I love this story. He said, Mr. So-and-so, he says, I can't answer all your intelligent questions. I'm not a man of great education. I'm sure you would twist my words and You would win any argument that we tried to start. He said, but here's my challenge. Can you produce me one man who has listened to your teaching and has followed your doctrine that used to be a drunkard, that used to beat his wife and abuse his children, and because he's listened to you and your teaching, he has now become a good, solid citizen. And he's put away his vice, and he's done those things. And he has reformed and become what we would call a good man. He said, could you find me one man that has been changed by the things that you teach, by following your example? And he said, if you could find one, and he said, I don't believe you will. He says, I'll bring you a thousand that have been changed by believing that Jesus died on the cross and was buried and rose again to pay the price for their sins. I like that story because it's true. You see, we don't offer, as some say, pie in the sky by and by. I plan on having some here on the way. Amen? Because Jesus said he's come to give us joy. Not, not like Miss Olstein teaches. God is not here to make you happy. That's, that's not the God of the Bible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that someone would say that. I'm not sorry that it's not true. Because there's a lot of wicked people that wicked things make them happy. And I'm glad God's not involved in that kind of foolishness. But I will tell you this. If you will submit to the foolishness of the preaching of this book. And love the things that God loves, you will find peace. Peace is a whole lot better than happiness. Uh, Jesus said, I've come to give you joy. I've come to give you life, and that life more abundant. That's not talking about a big bank account. I got things money can't buy, I got things that cannot be purchased. And I wouldn't trade them. You know what? My wife doesn't love me because of my money. If she did, she'd be, of all women, most miserable. And vice versa. But I'll tell you what. I'd rather have that than anything else. I'd rather have the ability to lay my head on a pillow at night knowing that I've served the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords than any other accomplishment that can be known to mankind. To watch children make decisions... That are going to put their lives and their futures on a path of service to God. Tell you what, you can't buy that with money. But you can get it through the foolishness of preaching. You can get it by surrendering yourself to the unseen hand of God. You can have the blessings that this world wishes they had. The world talks about peace. Read Acts chapter 2. There was so much peace in that first church that nobody even owned anything. The wicked usurper Karl Marx took that and thought he'd build a whole society based on that premise. There's only one problem with Mr. Mark's theory. People are selfish. And they're not going to get rid of selfishness without the foolishness of preaching. Without God doing his work in hearts. What has your faith in God done for you? Paul said, it's not with the wisdom of words, but it's in power. It's in the Spirit of God. Is there something happened in your life that only the Spirit of God could take credit for? Be given credit for? I'll tell you what, that's what God wants to do. And that's why Jesus died on the cross and was buried and rose again. How I many would say, Preacher, I remember a time when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and He saved me. Would you just say, Amen? amen. What is your faith in Jesus doing? It's supposed to do something. I like that song that Assurance sings this year. Uh, It says, I missed out on all the things that the world offers. A broken home, a broken heart. I missed out on all those things. Because I got this. I'll tell you what. I'll take Jesus. How about you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Lord, we just ask that you would work in our hearts. Lord, that our faith would not be in excellency of speech or enticing words of man's wisdom. But Lord, we would be in the Spirit of God. The only way we can know that is when we agree with what's written down in this old book. That our faith would have power to change the way we live. To give us victory over ourself. And over the wisdom of this world. And over its might and its power. Lord, there is nothing this world is more afraid of than somebody who's not afraid of this world. Lord, we ask that if there be someone here today that does not know you as their Savior, that they'd be willing to surrender to the foolishness of preaching and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. His death. His burial, His resurrection. That they'd be willing to stake their eternity upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Lord, we pray for those that are saved here today and are not living according to your word. They're just struggling with life and with circumstance and with sin and with problems. They have no joy, they have no peace. But Lord, these are the things that you want us to have. It says so in your word. We ask that today they would be willing to step out and get on their knees before holy God and confess their sin and ask for the power to do the things they should. Lord, whether it be making a public testimony of their salvation and following you through the waters of baptism, becoming a member of the church, Lord, to stop laughing at the dirty jokes at work on Monday. To stop putting up with blaspheming all the things that people do around us. To stop being afraid of the power of this world. Lord, we just ask that real worship would occur this morning. That we would humble ourselves before the holiness and greatness of God. And that you would be able to use our lives to get glory to your name. That we would not be impressed with ourselves. But Lord, we'd be impressed with you. We ask you to work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Brother Franz, come lead us in the hymn of invitation 301. I love this song because it tells us what we need to do. If you're not saved, just trust Him. If you're struggling with life and you are saved, just trust Him. As we sing, will you come? Join these that are already on their way.